Okay, wait a second. You're at inbox zero? Yeah. I always thought that was a mythical state. Yeah, I'm at inbox zero. How? Well, I mean, I've only been at my job for like a month. Here's what I found out, though. Even though I have anxiety about deleting the email, so far, so good. Like, I haven't really needed it. I guess in the very least, you can go back into your deleted email folder. Yeah, I guess that's really the goal would be to get to trash box zero. Welcome to Touchpoint, a podcast dedicated to discussions on digital marketing and digital patient engagement strategies for hospitals, healthcare systems, and physician practices. In this podcast, we'll dive deep into a variety of topics on the digital tools, solutions, strategies, and processes that are impacting our industry today. We hope to share a lot of great information and have fun along the way. And now, here are your hosts, Reed Smith and Chris Boyer. And welcome to another episode of Touchpoint. This is episode number 133. I am Reed Smith, joined as always by Chris Boyer. Hello, Reed. Welcome to episode 133. Really interesting topic today that that, uh, is going to be kind of fun to jump into on the philanthropic side of the equation, which we, you know, it's hard at, at this point in the game to talk about something new. You know, certainly nuanced or in more detail or revisiting something we haven't talked about in a while. But this is something like brand spanking new. So anyway, excited to jump into that. Before we do, touchpoint.health is the website. I would encourage you to go out there. And if you would, up at the top, there's something called the TPS report. Subscribe to that. It's our weekly email. Uh, it's going to notify you of anything new on the network, as well as just some industry and, and cool resources and news and conferences that are coming up, all that kind of fun stuff. Check out the other shows on the network. Rate, review, subscribe over on Apple Podcast or wherever you happen to listen. Still the number one way that everyone else may find out about the show. So we certainly appreciate the support. Let's take a quick break and then we'll dive right in. Using powerful AI-driven algorithms, Loyal's Guide helps patients along every step of their journey, from choosing a doctor and finding the nearest location to signing up for an event or clinical trial. Whether you are using Guide's chatbot, live chat, or the powerful combination of both, Loyal's engaging platform integrates seamlessly into your system, maximizes efficiency, and improves patients' digital experience. To learn more or schedule a demo, visit them online at loyalhealth.com forward slash demo. That is loyalhealth.com forward slash demo. Today, we're going to be talking about fundraising in health systems, or maybe it's known as different things depending on the health system you're at. I've heard it called many different things like foundation or development. Uh, You know, you see different people's job titles. You know, and it's talked about like gifts, like people are giving gifts, you know, so you see that a lot more in a, again, in a job title, but you have like major gifts and, and things like that. Well, and this is a big thing, right? In, in the healthcare industry and for hospitals and health systems, a number of us are actually nonprofits. According to the stats I found, the latest stats I found, there are about 5,700 hospitals in the United States. That's according to the American Hospital Association. Of these... Almost 3,000 of those hospitals are nonprofit. 
And I wonder if that if that's different from you because know, like a lot of you know are they cross categorizing you know, from rural or critical access you know that kind of thing. But still, that is the majority of hospitals. You're looking at half or maybe a little over half being classified again by the AHA at least as uh, as nonprofit. And you know, if you're a nonprofit hospital, chances are more than likely you have a fundraising arm or a a component of your uh, organization is dedicated to raising funds to help with a variety of different things. For a second, let's talk about what that would be. You know, you see the major gifts, you know, those are the ones that get reported on. Um, And so what are people giving those for? Typically, it's like capital projects, right? Like we're building a new building, location, cancer center, that kind of stuff. Or maybe you're getting an equipment like a new, you know, Da Vinci robot. I remember seeing a lot of that uh, a couple of years ago. You know, you're, you're investing in new technology to support that facility. You know, obviously the big major gifts, you know, end up with a name on the building. Much like higher ed, probably. You know, you're donating. It, you're going to have a name on the building or department or something like that. And then I think in recent years, again, I think technology being a driver of this, you're seeing, I think I you know, read just a little while ago, Mark Zuckerberg giving a bunch of money to one of the Silicon Valley hospitals out there around technology, which I guess would make sense or innovation or something like that. Well, I think that strikes at the, the spirit of what healthcare is. By its very nature, there's sort of this aspect of people that are participating in healthcare that kind of inspires that philanthropic nature of us. And we'll we'll get into that a little bit later. But as we were researching for this, I came across an article about GoFundMe. Did you know that GoFundMe is now one of the largest healthcare donation platforms in the country? I I don't know that I would have guessed that. I mean, certainly I I say that, but then again, I guess typically when I see something about GoFundMe, it has to do with medical expenses. Something's happened to someone's spouse or, you know, something like that. And and people are asking for donations to help support this family in this time of need. In fact, the CEO said, uh, this is back in January, that one-third of all donations on GoFundMe go towards covering those healthcare costs. Well, now I just feel bad because you can't put anything on GoFundMe now. Yeah, it's like, oh, that's super that you want a new PlayStation. But, you know, we've got this family over here that's lost their home or their kid has cancer. So I'm sure we'll see that actually grow. You know, one third, or it'd probably be pretty. It'd probably be half here pretty quick. You know, what's sad for me is that's probably reflective of the rising costs of healthcare and how difficult it is to access good care. And you know, it's a whole other show that we can talk about that. But the past few years, this whole concept of crowdfunding, raising small amounts of money from a large number of donors online, has become one of the main ways families are seeking to pay these medical expenses. Yeah, it would make sense. Again, you know, it's another topic for another day, but a lot of this, you know, weighs into, you know, even price transparency and, you know, that kind of thing. You know, I have no idea what I'm going to end up paying for what I'm about to incur, but I don't really have a choice because in a lot of cases it's emergent. So it's interesting, you know, th- this idea that where we used to see something like a care pages or something like that on a hospital website, and that's how you would update your friends, family. It's about, you know, what's happening, what's going on. Now it's focused around that fundraising effort. This is the way that you're updating friends, family, loved ones 
about your journey or your sibling's journey or spouse or kid or whoever it may be. And it's centered around this idea of the financial piece of it. It's a common saying in fundraising or in philanthropic efforts that you you lead with your heart, you know, and then you you follow with your wallet, right? But it seems like that's really getting into our everyday lives. And that's really reflective of that. So I think you're right. Whatever happened to Care Pages? I guess GoFundMe has become the new one. Obviously, there's different things that still exist. And I'm sure there's probably some integrations with things like GoFundMe. But yeah, I mean, that's a business idea right there. Let's talk a little bit, you know, we got kind of down into this little hole about GoFundMe. But let's talk about overall, how much charitable support is given to the healthcare industry. Now, this has been really hard for us to try to track down the numbers. But what I found on this website called charitynavigator.org, they have a listing of all these giving statistics and their data is a couple years old. You know, back in 2017, they say the total giving to charitable organizations was about $410 billion in the United States. That's a lot. Uh, that's almost hard to even, like the number almost doesn't mean anything. Yeah, $410 billion. That's 2% of, of GDP, so they say. I'll take their word for it. I didn't do the math, but I'll take their word for it. That's a lot of money. And so if you kind of drill down a little bit further into just health charities, you know, they experienced an increase of 15.5% to $38.27 billion. So where we saw an overall increase of 5%, the health charities experienced, you know, an increase of three times that uh, or 9% of all donations. Does 9% seem like a lot? I guess it does overall, if you think about just all the charitable donations. And I don't know how they classify some of this stuff, certainly. But. And it's probably not looking at things like GoFundMe as part of that stat, right? It's charitable donations through you know, 503C or, or whatever the... Yeah, something that's reported. In my experience working in digital with these foundations or the, the development teams or what have you, I don't spend a lot of time working with them. But what I do know is that typically it, uh, uh, in most hospitals, they have traditionally, you know, kind of two different ways they look at fundraising. So the first one is probably what most people are thinking about. You know, it's a foundation, it's set up, they raise funds, you know, from individuals, from organizations, really anyone. It's, it's a charitable giving organization. I guess that, you know, it aligns with the strategic priorities of the hospital in most cases, certainly. And we talked a little bit about that a minute ago, but the expansion, you know, new equipment, technology, innovation, even the emotional side of the equation. So a lot of the patient support services, uh, subsidies for those that, that can't pay, charity care, if you will. But it's a it's a nonprofit and, and anybody can give them money. They take donations and they do fundraisers and things like that. They do the big ga- galas. Gala is it galas or galas? I call it gala. So there's a third pronunciation right there. I don't know. Maybe we should run a Twitter poll. Anyway, um, <laughs> but the point being is, you know, they're, they're finding ways through events or uh, online activities, and that's where a lot of the marketing comes in. It's very transactional, obviously, uh, and there's even things like, you know, the Google Donate button and some of those types of things that don't even charge you a fee that these organizations use to, you know, generate, you know, that transactional income. Now, that's one of the most common models, but there's this other model now 
which are which are called health conversion foundations, or they're also called health legacy foundations. And they're typically formed when a nonprofit hospital, healthcare system, or a health plan is either acquired by a for-profit firm or converted to a for-profit status. And the proceeds from these transactions are then tra- transferred into sort of an, like an endowment of a foundation. And really the focus of that is maintaining the general mission of the entity that was sold. But, you know, ensuring that you can change when you change your organizational status from nonprofit to for-profit, that you're not getting any kind of tax or, or, or legal implications by doing so. I haven't seen many of those, though. Have you? Not really. Well, I say that. I, I have seen where some hospitals have sold to for-profit companies, and the foundation that used to exist does still exist. And so I guess that's kind of what that is. Like they had a foundation as part of this nonprofit hospital. They sold the hospital, the man, you know, the actual brick and mortar hospital delivery care to another organization. The hospital remained. The foundation is now technically a separate entity. It wants to continue doing that mission-driven work. I didn't know that was what that was called, a health legacy foundation. But I have seen that around the country a few times. I've seen it in Texas a couple of times. And and I've also seen, maybe it's kind of a hybrid of the two, but an organization will come in and buy, and I, again, I'm speaking about stuff I don't know, I guess. But anyway, organization comes in and buys a, a nonprofit or a portion of a nonprofit hospital. The foundation retains, say, 50%. So it's a 50-50 partnership. And they are a fund-giving organization, which I guess is what those legacy foundations could be considered, versus a fundraising organization. So they get a portion of the proceeds every year, being a half-owner of the hospital, and then they give those funds away. There's no donate button on their website, right? It's It's a little bit of a different mechanism and different business model. And now we're getting into territory that you and I are probably not very familiar with, which is actually kind of surprising, considering that you and I have had a lot of experience working within hospitals and health systems. After the break, we're going to come back. We're going to talk a little bit about some of the trends around online fundraising and actually talk about digital fundraising. And this is really where it'll come to light for us, Reed, where they're doing things in this realm that we as digital marketers do all the time. With that, why don't we take a break and we'll be right back. You care about simplifying the way your healthcare organization does business. And so do we. At Scorpion, our mission is to empower our clients to focus on things that really matter by giving them a simple, powerful, effective suite of marketing solutions for their healthcare digital presence. To learn more, visit us online at scorpion.co. All right. So before the break, we talked about the different foundation structures, and we even made mention the fact that we're easing into territory that we don't know much about. But never fear, we'll keep talking. <laughs> we're back and wanted to jump into an article from GuideStar, a great organization and has a lot of great content on their website, actually. But this is a, uh, a blog post from just a couple of months ago titled, Why Smaller Donations Are One of 2019's Biggest Online Fundraising Trends. We've seen this, right? Like everybody has seen this. Well, we were just talking about the fact that small donations through GoFundMe is a way for people to raise money to cover healthcare costs. But what's interesting about this article is they kind of go into 
the whole mindset around smaller donations and why that's a big part of fundraising efforts. And that should be considered more broadly. Now, in my experience working with the foundations, the health systems I've worked at before, they typically have this whole span of types of donations. They have the very high-end donations, the big estate. You know, what you talked about before, Mark Zuckerberg giving millions of dollars, huge, huge donations. And then you have going to to starting to build a relationship on the smaller end of the spectrum. What we're finding now is, just like everything else, the internet, digital, is driving significant change. And one of the things that's driving that change is how we raise money is considerably shifting to these smaller funds. Even in our daily lives, we see this where, uh, especially on Facebook, you know, it's somebody's birthday. Hey, instead of giving me a birthday present, you know, donate to this cause. And it's got the little graph on the bottom or whatever, and you can donate really anything. I, can you donate less than a dollar? Probably not, I guess. But it's this micro giving. Because you, you've you seen people, right, on LinkedIn or you knew them or you've known them in your, you know, just your professional life. They're like these major donor people. You know, they work at a foundation, whether it's healthcare or not. But that's what they do, right, is they go one and dine wealthy people and try to get money for their organization and that kind of stuff. I, you know, I don't know, man, this micro giving thing is like almost outpacing this idea. And what they talk about is here, there's a lower overhead per transaction and you still get the same amount of engagement, but from more people. And in fact, what they say is that donors prefer micro projects over traditional appeals because they feel as if they are making a bigger impact on achieving this goal. You've seen now where we're moving away from traditional models, I think is the theme here. Before it was like you had to have a lot of money and you gave it to an organization and then they did something with it. And you were giving towards some big push, right? To pay off debt, you know, maybe for, for some nonprofit or to build a building at, at your alma mater or to build the cancer center at this place that you had great care, whatever it was, you know, you had to be this big wealthy person. Well, the same thing in like the movie industry, right? Like before to to produce a movie or to have credits on like funding, you know, you had to give a lot of money. Well, now, you know, you're seeing documentaries where you can donate $100, $200 or whatever, and you can have production credit, you know, against this thing. You're seeing that incremental amount of money actually pay off into these projects, you know, versus that, you know, these micro projects versus that kind of that bigger thing that we've historically looked at. So you mentioned this little thermometer or this little barometer, you know, barometer that tells you how far you're going at the bottom. That's a big part of this, right? That's called the completion effect. Really what we're driven to do is finish those projects. We see that our gifts are making a, a difference and towards that completion, it really satisfies and triggers that primal part of our nature. And in fact, this article indicates that it triggers the release of endorphins and oxytocin, 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 not to be confused with oxycotton. That's completely different. (laughs) But still, what's interesting is I was at a hospital. I actually worked at a health system a while ago. It seemed like that hospital had everything in that hospital that could have a donor's name on it. There were seats in an auditorium and each seat had a different donor's name. You know, that's kind of part of this idea of like these smaller projects. You get to put your name on something. You get to have your name in the movie credits, as you said. All of this stuff going towards this larger goal. And I I see that now, too, like when I see Kickstarters. 
And I'm like, hey, I want to throw 10 bucks towards that. Maybe I'll get something out of it at the end. Other industries have done this for years. I remember when the Texas Rangers built their uh, stadium, which is now going to be their old stadium because they're building another new stadium. In Arlington, they built a stadium. I think it opened in 1994. And... They sold, you know, bricks outside the stadium, the walkway that goes around the exterior of the stadium with all these bricks. And you could you could pay X amount of dollars and get your name on a brick. And they would do it around your birth year. So they would have all the years. And then in those years, they would have the stats and like the awards from that year. Anyway, the point being is like, you know, they found ways to like, how can we get another hundred dollars out of somebody? Then how does that go against a bigger thing, right? A bigger completion. Uh, In this case, building a stadium, maybe it's tomorrow we're building a cancer center, you know, whatever it is, You you don't have to have your name on the building necessarily. That leads to the next article that we're going to talk about, which are digital trends to watch out for in 2019 to support fundraising. Because a lot of what you're talking about, Reed, is like if you get in at a smaller donation, organizations that are doing fundraising are starting to use tools and technologies that are not foreign to this podcast. We've talked about them before. We found this article on a website called Nonprofit Tech for Good. So it must be a good website, right? Wow. Yeah, absolutely. They outline five digital fundraising trends that we need to watch out for. Let's just go down the list. I'll jump in with number one here, which is marketing automation and giving automation. Hmm. (laughs) I've heard of that. Basically, what they're saying is there's this technology called marketing automation that will allow you to put donors on a journey designed to create these individual pathways to drive deeper engagement with your nonprofit's mission or a specific program that you're doing fundraising for. Nice. Makes total sense. The the second thing they point out is using technology to nurture recurring giving. So turning one-time givers into recurring donors is uh, obviously probably a huge hurdle. If you can get over that hurdle, things become a little more predictable. You know, somebody gives you a hundred dollars once that's great, but it's hard to budget against that. This idea of recurring donations is really important. And I'm sure there's some metrics around that. I know I was on my churches. I was actually the chair, which is scary, of our church's uh, finance committee at one point in time. And so the idea, you know, people would tithe. You needed that to like, you know, turn the lights on on Sunday and be able to run the air conditioning and things like that. And if people did not tithe on a regular basis, you know, you needed a certain amount of people to, because otherwise there was no way to employ anybody. You couldn't predict anything that was going to come through the door. So uh, recurring gift giving is a, is a big deal. I think there's ways to use, obviously, technology uh, to do that and make them feel connected to the organization. And Yeah, we did a whole episode on nurturing, didn't we? So the third thing is relevant contextual communications. This is like right out of the book of the Touchpoint podcast, Read, We've talked about marketing automation. We've talked about nurturing. And now we're talking about personalized communications. Back to my earlier point, why aren't we spending more time with people that are doing fundraising in our health systems? <laughs> we, we should. They're doing the same yeah. things we're doing. Yeah. I mean, they even have CRMs around donors, right? I mean, there's people that build software just for that. Number four on the list, uh, continued disruption of the nonprofit sector by commercial payers, uh, players like <laughs> payers, uh, players like Facebook, uh, maybe payers as well. They talk about how Facebook <laughs> is doubling down 
on you know deploying commerce features. And we talked about it just a little while ago, right? Including you know that charitable giving piece. It talks in here that they recently had removed the charitable fundraising fees. So 100% of that money that you commit to is going to the charity. That'll be interesting to see what that does to folks like the aforementioned GoFundMe and, and some of the others. Okay. So disruption from Facebook. Let's see. What was that? Episode 39 yeah. or something like that? Um, we've covered right. these things before. Okay. The fifth trend. Moving away from overhead to outcomes will allow investment in technology. Basically, what they're saying is that as a philanthropic leader or a fundraiser leader, you need to start administering more technology, shifting your costs away from more people costs or more overhead costs to allowing technology to drive some of those outcomes, implementing AI, Mm -hmm. And implementing other technologies to make your fundraising efforts more efficient. Okay, that's like Touchpoint Podcast Bingo right there, isn't it? Pretty much. It's everything we talk about in pretty much every episode. The idea is that there's a transactional element to what they're doing. Being able to connect with, nurture relationships and keep them involved is a way that they you know, engage and are successful. Here is another area where we as digital people within health systems, we can start to become more involved and maybe even support them in some of the efforts that they're doing. The blurry line between marketing and operations, here's another one. I think so. I mean, we've talked about this a lot, right, is that we've got to move away from this idea that, you know, we're an advertising department and we've got to continue to connect and uh, interlace our expertise and uh, even learn from other parts of the organization. And so, like you mentioned, whether it's operations, whether it's quality, ITNS, in this case, it's it's the foundation. In most cases, that's how it's going to be framed is, is the foundation. So, uh, you know, the opportunity to move alongside some of those major gift uh, donors and, and people that work in that in that space, I think, is a, an interesting place for us to participate. And what's great is right after this break, we're going to come back to an interview I did with the incomparable Jean Hitchcock, who's been in the space for a very long time. She's going to share her background where she came from a nonprofit and she went into healthcare and some of the ways that she sees hospitals and health systems are starting to kind of break down that barrier between digital marketing, marketing and fundraising. That'll be here right after this break. Are you struggling with online reputation management? Binary Health Analytics provides healthcare systems, hospitals, and physician practices a complete view into managing patient feedback from online ratings and reviews and especially surveys. It continuously mines feedback for sediment, uncovering timely and actionable insights. Its management tools help turn these insights into an opportunity to increase patient engagement, manage reputation, and improve patient experience. To learn more about Binary Health Analytics, visit Binary Fountain online at binaryfountain.com. That is binaryfountain.com. All 
All right. Welcome back to the Ask the Expert section of our podcast. And today I'm talking to a dear friend. And as you said, it's okay for me to say old friend because we've known each other for years. And that's Gene Hitchcock. Gene, welcome to the show. Thank you, Chris. I'm so glad we were finally able to get this organized. So am I. I have been thinking about interviewing you since episode one. So I'm glad <laughs> we finally got you around to this. And uh, we want to make, make sure to promise me that it's not going to be the last time we have I you promise. on the show. I okay. promise. So, Gene, you and I have known each other for a long time in this industry. But some people listening in may not know about you. Can you give them a little bit of your background and bring them up to speed on what you're doing now? Sure. I got into healthcare in Michigan when I went to work for Butterworth Hospital, which is now called Spectrum Health, and I fell in love with healthcare. And so my whole career has been spent in healthcare marketing and communications. I've been on, as they say, the inside at uh, Spectrum Health, Ohio Health, Scripps Health, and MedStar Health. In between there, I did a short gig as a consultant for the RIN Marketing Group. And when I left MedStar in 2014, I was approached by a number of friends who said, why don't you do consulting? And I, I, I didn't know if that was where I wanted to go, but five years later, it was probably the best decision I ever made. So I run Hitchcock Marketing and Communications out of Maryland. And you still work with a number of large health systems across the country. Is that right? Yep. It's been a real pleasure to help other people who are going through a lot of the same things that you and I have gone through. Mm -hmm. Um, But having the benefit of sort of experience and having been there, being able to you know, quickly give them some strategies to sort of overcome barriers or obstacles they're having. Even though we've had a lot of change in healthcare, a lot of things have not changed, you know, so they Mm -hmm. need to know how to um, communicate well and um, how to communicate about change, to be honest. You got that right. Our industry is under a lot of change, but I find that a lot of times when working with organizations, I work either outside or within, I've been a consultant as well. Mm-hmm. Some of the changes are, are really based on some systemic things within the health system itself. Do you, would you agree with that? Absolutely. And in fact, it cannot ever be overstated, but the culture of an organization really indicates whether they're going to survive or not in during all the change. I'm working with one organization right now who has had a really an amazing CEO who took them out of the jaws of um, you know financial peril and has made mm-hmm. them very, very successful. And he's the first person to say, I'm not the person to take this organization to the next step. Now, mm-hmm. he's the rare CEO he recognizes it's kind of like you know steve jobs after a while couldn't stay at apple because he was the idea guy but then when it came to day-to-day management he probably wasn't the best fit the culture is is really what makes an organization either thrive or die related to that today i invited you on the show because i really wanted to talk to you about one aspect of healthcare that we haven't really covered in our podcast before Mm -hmm. and it does tie back to the culture of an organization and that's healthcare fundraising you know, the last couple of months, I've noticed that you published a couple of articles on LinkedIn. And by right. the way, we're going to connect to your LinkedIn on this show here so people can follow you because you put out a lot of great information about healthcare fundraising. Tell us a little bit about that because that is certainly a part of the DNA of many of the nonprofit organizations that we work in. So before I got into healthcare, I actually was the chief development officer for a large nonprofit in Michigan. Mm-hmm. And so I have philanthropy background in my DNA. I understand that people can be motivated by wanting to do good things for other people. If they believe in your cause, they'll be strong advocates. And I so enjoyed 
connecting donors with causes that they could really feel good about. A lot of health systems, they tell me that, you know, marketing and communications and philanthropy don't get along. Well, I don't really understand that because <laughs> we married at the hip. And maybe it's because of my background coming out of philanthropy. One of the smarter moves I did um, in my career was when I went to Scripps Health, which is mm-hmm. one of the best organizations in the country and one of the organizations that is truly blessed with gen- generous donors. I actually implanted two Marcom people into the foundation because it helped raise mm. their professionalism of their materials. We kept the brand protected and, you know, positioned in the right way. And then they, it was also that great bridge because, you know, philanthropy creates a ton of materials. So we had somebody who had a direct conduit to our creative services team, and that worked out really well. Um, it's usually the exception and not the case, though, as I go around the country. It could be anything from we're totally separate, we don't talk to each other, yet we do a lot of the same things. Mm-hmm. We need each other, but we don't work closely together. And again, it goes back to culture. You know, why is yeah. that? And philanthropy is a natural client of marketing and communications, just like HR is, just like right. organizational development is. And the more expansive Marcom leaders get that, you know, they understand Mm -hmm. that a lot. I've always been an advocate for finding out, you know, working closer together, finding out common ground, and then working together to have a really strong relationship. I agree with you. And uh, and unfortunately, in my experience, it has been disconnected. Um, mm-hmm. Me as a digital marketer, I don't spend a lot of time working with the foundation or the, the, the development aspects of our organization. It's almost like there's this kind of silo between them. Mm-hmm. And you say that's maybe uh, that's built a little bit on culture. Tell us a little bit about that. Why, why are the, those cultural differences? Well, it depends on how people look at philanthropy. I mean, there are organizations um, who count on philanthropy for their annual capital budget, for example. Mm -hmm. That's how intertwined philanthropy can be with operations. Mm -hmm. In other cases, it's kind of the icing on the cake, you know, an endowed chair or something we'd like to do that we can't do with our normal operating funds, you know, Mm -hmm. kind of thing. So depending on how close the CEO and the senior leadership sees philanthropy as part of their normal operations usually drives the level of cooperation within an organization. I think some of the pettiness that gets involved is they're so philanthropy and Marcom can be so similar. They have almost identical teams right. and people sort of say, why is that? It's natural. They want to protect their donors and Marcom is saying, yes, but a lot of our donors are our patients and we shouldn't be, we'd be working closer together. So that's the divide I try to bridge with um, organizations I work with. We've been hearing a lot at conferences and over the last couple of years about how marketing's role is shifting to really develop that relationship mm-hmm. with customers and really develop a sort of a, uh, a lifelong relationship, if you will, with that customers. And we talk about nurturing. There's a lot of kind of these keywords that development fundraising has been doing for years, right? right. And so it's almost like uh, there's a little bit of like what you're going after my customers now and mm-hmm. it feels a little internal competitive. Is that fair to say? Yes. And I think that's the naivete. They're all our customers. You know, mm-hmm. the donors are our patients or our customers. Um, and so there's really more of a commonality. Recently, at one of my clients, there was a Marcom person and a philanthropy person showed up in a patient's room to talk to them about doing a patient's story. 
I can only imagine how uncomfortable the family must have felt. And so I ended up having to basically say, you know, let's one of us get the story. We'll share it. You can put a philanthropy bent on it and we will put a patient story bent on it and put it on that service lines, you know, website. But it, it takes somebody who sort of has an expansive view to show how much they have in common, to be honest. And and I think that story mm-hmm. that you just told illustrates the fact that there's like these deep silos that have been built within health systems, right. where the marketing team, the, the development team, and you know what, frankly, uh, we, Reed and I just did an episode about one of the things that to attract some of the newer generation, millennial generations to healthcare, they really care about how the, the organization is impacting the community. And there's mm-hmm. aspects of what fundraising and the, the stories and the way that we're changing the community is uh, impacting that as well. So now we have multiple people that might benefit from good fundraising efforts. Absolutely. And, you know, part of it, it gets back to, to your comment about relationships. And again, having come from philanthropy in my youth, there's a part of you that says, I, I want to be the, the lead on that relationship with X, Y, and Z. Mm-hmm. you know, whoever that donor is. Mm-hmm. Well, for philanthropy, that's probably very appropriate. But when that comes to the overall relationship of the organization with that person, there can be multiple people who sort of take the lead at different times, you know, right. and that's the hard part, the sharing, because, you know, it's a delicate balance and you have to learn to work well, well together. And, um, you know, donors can sense when that isn't happening. Absolutely. I mean, they're the ones that know, right? They're getting multiple communications from different people, like the example that you shared earlier, right? And that that shows that there's a disconnect internally. Um, so how do you see like some of the organizations that are more advanced at this? What are some of the things that you see that they're doing to start to, start to bridge that gap and start working together? That's a great question, Chris. And there's a couple of things I've seen in terms of, let's just put it in the category of sort of advanced thinking on this. A lot of doctors have patients who they know have the capacity to give and are very thankful for the care they've received, yet they're uncomfortable asking patients to donate or you know, to change the dynamic of the relationship by being the one asking for something. So I've worked in a Marcom department where we actually did a training video for doctors on how to Mm. ask donors for money. Um, We used some of the doctors who were superstars already. So in other words, star performers. Mm -hmm. And we did videos that we trained. And and it was one of the most well-received pieces because everyone just assumed everyone knew how to ask for money. It's not natural, you know, for people if they haven't done it particularly when a doctor has established a clinical relationship with the family. Another thing is um, an organization um, that I used to work with, I introduced them to a firm that is really doing a lot of great fundraising, mostly with millennials, but it's all digital. It's all online. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. it goes a little contrary to the old thinking about the personal relationship with donors. Donors don't start out at the $10,000 level. You know, they start small and then they build up. And so Mm -hmm. the whole thing is to feed the pipeline, if you will, with new donors. And so this organization has seen tremendous growth in terms of online giving, but more importantly, they're seeing a tremendous growth in new donors to the organization because they're appealing to a younger audience and the messaging on the website is all about community health, dealing with opioids, dealing with behavioral health, which are very much front and center with a lot of people um, in this country right now. So, you know, there are people who have taken the best of Marcom and applied it to philanthropy and vice versa. 
You mentioned the physician being having a role in, in these efforts, and you recently wrote an article on LinkedIn about ethical considerations, and you kind of right. highlighted the physician-patient relationship. Talk mm-hmm. a little bit about that. I know a lot of things have changed in healthcare, but maybe now even more so because we have so many options for selecting a physician. You know, it used to be you talk to a friend, you talk to a neighbor, you talk to somebody. But now with everything that we have online, people are much smarter and they're going and they're selecting a physician. Mm -hmm. Now, they can also unselect a physician, but once they've made a decision to go with a health system and a physician, it's a personal choice that they've made. I've selected you for these reasons. And so there's a, they start out with a level of trust. Mm -hmm. And that just continues as they get good care. It's the same trust relationship we've always had with doctors. But the difference is now we have a very informed consumer who is also quick to judge whether they feel they're getting good care or not. To the the point, for example, I had a a personal experience recently where a family member in Dallas received um, a troubling diagnosis. And I said, you need to get a second opinion. And I hooked them up with someone I knew in California. They had a second opinion. It went well. He's now transferring his care, his specialty care to San Diego. That's how quickly people will change. And that's why it's so important for the physician to providing great clinical care and be a good communicator, which again is how Marcom comes into it and helping doctors do that. There's this concept that you raised about clinically vulnerable. How does that impact when you're talking about you know, that relationship that you have with the patient as being potentially now a donor, what are some considerations that health systems should kind of look at regarding that relationship? Let me just go on record as saying no one is more vulnerable as when they're either in a wheelchair or laying flat on their back on a gurney. And we tend to forget that. A normal visit to a doctor is is somewhat stress-related unless you're having symptoms of something. So the point is, the patient usually in the course of um, clinical care will express um, how they're feeling about the way they're being treated, whether it's for testing or, or radiology or anything like that. And the doctor can pick up cues as to the level of support from the donor and then transitioning that to a conversation later on, just saying, you know, you've been a, a patient here for a very, very long time and we really appreciate that. And doctors need to express that. It, mm-hmm. it used to always be one way. Doctor, we're so thankful you're taking care of us. Now doctors need to be also appreciative of patients who have so many choices of saying, thank you for choosing us for your care. It gives me a level of confidence as we continue in the relationship. Yeah, absolutely. That, I totally agree with you on that 100%. Now, I want to pivot a little bit because you mentioned that you're working with some organizations that are appealing to millennials and doing it digital. Since digital is sort of the focus of this podcast, definitely have to want to, want to underscore that and talk a little bit about how organizations are using digital as part of their fundraising uh, development efforts. Even the oldest dinosaurs that are still walking the face of the earth have come to terms with the fact that life has become more digital. There's more information everywhere. We used to say funny things like, remember when you had to get to the bank before five o'clock? Well, who's been to a bank and who's been inside a bank you know, in the last six months? So life as we know it has changed. But you know, we learned a lot actually from two or three organizations. The Susan Komen Foundation and Breast Health Fundraising really took its cue from not only digital marketing, but also political campaigning. Mm-hmm. They realized that by targeting messages to the right people, they would have better results. It goes back to the age-old 
marketing axiom, which is the right message to the right person at the right time. Well, with digital, you absolutely can do that. I give money to Moms Demand Action. Mm -hmm. And as a result of what happened in El Paso and Dayton, I can tell you that the Brady organization has reached out to me and a number of other groups that are concerned about gun violence have reached out. That's all because my digital footprint indicated that I was somebody who was supportive of that. That's the kind of pinpoint accuracy that philanthropy can have. The group that has done some amazing work with healthcare systems uh, grew out of Obama's social media campaign. That's what they ran for both of his elections. And they just turned their focus from politics to healthcare. And so that's why they've been very successful with their clients as well. That overlay of how political candidates interact with their, what would we call them, like followers? And healthcare and how we try to build that affinity, I think there's a natural link between that. And I remember one of the first persons I worked with in healthcare many, many years ago, back in your neck of the woods, right in the, in the DC area, he said that healthcare marketing and healthcare communications is really closely aligned to how political organizations are structured. It's interesting because Obama is a great example. Obama's efforts of using embracing digital and really yeah. reaching that youth vote is something that I've seen now reflected over and over again through a variety of different tools and tactics. What are some of the things that you're seeing that they're doing now? You know, they, they have the messaging right. It's a generational thing. That's my opinion only, but mm. generational, you know, before we would talk to people about paying for a da Vinci robot because it's $1.3 million. Mm -hmm. Now what they're talking about is this is what our health system is doing in population health. And in our community, it's opioid addiction. It's young women getting pregnant without good prenatal care. It's, it's cause related. It's mm -hmm. versus thing related or equipment acquisition related. It's more causal. So your point about being about similar to political campaigns is absolutely right on. You have to appeal to the head and the heart, and it's a, it's a delicate mixture or balance, I should say, of, of those two things. Mm -hmm. um, also, everybody wants to give on. I mean, people want to, are comfortable now donating online. I mean, for years, people were saying, oh, I don't want to give up my credit card information online. Well, look how far we've come. You know, between messaging and ease, access, it makes it much easier. And then the other part of it on the flip side is, remember, we used to do these large publications from foundations, which covered the waterfront. There was something in there for everyone, right? Mm -hmm. And they would put, they, they cost a fortune. You'd have photography and writers and whatever. Now you get an email back from the organization that's on the topic you're interested in. Right. And it's just the right message at the right time where you're going to be sitting every day reading this anyway. So it's much more efficient and it's much smarter. And the thing is, as a consumer, like my example I was using about the gun violence, it's speaking to something I'm very concerned about. And so I'm reading them all, you know, and seeing what each different organization's doing. I think it's a, a great service when you can get the right message in front of the right people at the right time. And that's the one thing that I've seen with digital over the last, you know, maybe 10 decade mm -hmm. or so is that your digital footprint is now really defining who you are as an individual and your preferences. Right. And, and so that becomes now a natural fit that digital marketing, what I used to call now is becoming more of that digital consumer engagement in multiple different capacities and can be applied mm -hmm. that way. I was doing a consulting project for a Big Ten university at their medical school. 
And it just uh, floored me how a lot of academics, not all, but a lot of academic institutions have not embraced digital. They're still doing the massive reports for each of their schools, you know, to all Mm. of their donors. Well, if I'm a donor to XYZ University, I probably support the school I went to. But in general, I support the school, you know. So how many different publications is that donor getting? And after a while, it starts to look excessive. And it also looks like not a good use of money. So academia tends to be a little bit behind healthcare in a number of areas. They keep, they still separate marketing and communications. They see them as two very separate functions. But um, I was really struck by that when I went, I was there for six months and I just could not believe they were like publication houses. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, you know, this younger generation isn't just not going to go for this. You know, they want more digital, they want online, they want to be able to review information when they want it and where they want it. I would say that it's probably not reflective of just the younger generation, though. I'm kind of getting to that, you know, in my old age here, just trying to get to that (laughs) as well. I don't know how you feel about that. Well, I'm still a stickler for the Sunday New York Times, but um, <laughs> and I do get the Washington Post delivered every morning and I read it cover to cover, but everything else is online. Absolutely. And all day long, I get my notifications pushed to me from the New York Times on my phone. I think for sentimental reasons and also the New York Times crossword puzzle on Sunday, I you know get the paper. But yeah, just about all of us do. I mean, I don't remember the last time I I mean, Christmas shopping at the mall used to be sort of a tradition. I right. I don't even go to the mall anymore because I don't want to put up with the traffic and I can get everything online. Yeah, it's all about that convenience. And mm-hmm. um, just FYI, Jean, uh, the New York Times is a really good app that you can download for your phone. So. I got it. <laughs> I got it. No, no, no. I use the app all, all the time. This is a puzzle on Sunday. I got to have it in my hand. And the book review, of course. Those are my two favorites. <laughs> of course, of course. Jean, this has been a really, really great conversation. I really appreciate your insights. Is there anything else that you want to say to our audience about this topic that, that, might, that we haven't covered yet? Well, now that you, uh, you've told me how many people listen to this, I would hope that maybe this could start the conversation between the marketing and communications people and the philanthropy people to look at not what separates them, but what they have in common. Because mm-hmm. I think, you know, to use the adage, both boats will rise is, you know, you can save money, you can really help each other by working closer together. And that's what I try to do when I go into these organizations, because depending on where they are in the relationship, it can just make things so much better for both of them, or it can become a, an irritant every single day. So the goal would be to get more commonality and come together around what the goals of the organization are. Well, amen to that. I think that is something that we all struggle with within health systems. And I really appreciate kind of your thoughts and insights. You know, people listening in may want to know a little bit more about you and maybe reach out to you. What's a good way for them to find you? I have a website, hitchcockmarcom.com. But my email is gene, J-E-A-N, at Hitchcock, like Alfred, then M-A-R-C-O-M dot com. Awesome. Alfred Hitchcock. That's a great reference. (laughs) But we'll we'll definitely put the links in our show notes, too, for people that want to uh, reach out and connect with you. And we'll also connect them to your LinkedIn because you have a lot of great articles that you publish out there that uh, I encourage everybody to listen to. You know, Chris, one of the things I decided when I left being on the inside of healthcare is that there's a whole new generation of people coming up. And I just wanted to share some of the learnings 
so they don't have to learn it the hard way. And so I got into LinkedIn because somebody asked me to write an article on something. And the next thing I know, I'm posting every week now. So it's mm -hmm. become a source of joy just to share sort of the learnings from um, my own experience as well as other people's. So thank you for recognizing that. I appreciate it. Well, and thank you for sharing those learnings with us on this podcast, which is you know similar to you. Instead of writing, we put out an, a weekly audio uh, blog mm -hmm. through this show. So I so you. appreciate it. Yeah. Well, I appreciate it too, Jean. Thank you so much. And let's not be a stranger. We want to have you on because you have a lot of other great information we want to share. I'm happy to. All right. Well, special thanks to Jean Hitchcock. Always great to hear from her and have her expertise on the show. Appreciate the, uh, the idea and the opportunity to talk about uh, philanthropy on the show for the first time. Great conversation. Absolutely. She's so smart. And she, I, I just love chatting with her about a variety of different things. If you ever see her at a conference, she typically attends most of the conferences. Make sure you reach out to her and just say hello to her. Absolutely. All right. Well, very cool. A uh, couple of quick points of order before we get to recommendations. Uh, again, website, touchpoint.health. Go check it out. Uh, also, uh, let our sponsors know that you heard about them here on the show. That's always important. They allow us to continue to do this. So please check them out. If you're attending ShishMed or HCIC or one of these upcoming conferences, uh, go by their booth. Let them know that we sent you. Speaking of going by booths, we have a couple of conferences that we're going to be at. We, we won't have a booth there. Uh, I don't think the Touchpoint booth would be that heavily attended, I think, I, I fear. <laughs> you never know. We're going to be at a number of conferences this fall. The first one is right in your now, the town that you live in, right, Reed? Nashville, Tennessee. Yes, uh, that is here in just a couple of weeks now at this point, uh, September the 8th through the 11th. And it's uh, downtown Nashville, the ShishMed Connections 2019. Always a popular conference, great group of folks, big attendance. So let me know. Uh, I've got an event I would love to invite you to if you're going to be in town. If you'll reach out to me on LinkedIn or Twitter or something like that, uh, I'll make sure you have that information. Also coming up uh, shortly after that, latter part of September, I believe it's the 25th of uh, September, is a webinar that we're doing with our friends over at Medicom. And uh, we'll have some more information about that over the next coming weeks. Uh, and then we're, we're going to be up your way, right? Uh, about a month after that in October. That's right. That's at the 2019 Mayo Clinic Social Media Networks Annual Conference at the Mayo Clinic headquarters in Rochester, Minnesota. We've talked about this before, Reed. It is such a beautiful campus to go to. I mean, not only is it the bastion of healthcare in the United States, but it also is a really great place. They have a lot of beautiful artwork there. There's, there's a lot of great tours being planned. And where else can you go to get the latest in social media and healthcare? And hear our podcast being live recorded in front of an audience. That's right. Always a good time. I can't recommend that conference enough. It is social media specific, which is kind of cool. You know, you kind of nuanced. You, you really get into the weeds uh, with some folks. There's a lot of clinical people that attend. A lot of doctors uh, from Mayo will be there and otherwise. Uh, yeah, you can't beat the art tour. So there you go. And then the following month, Reed, you and I are going to once again get on a plane and fly on over to the good state of Florida 
for the Healthcare Internet Conference, right? Yep, November 4th through the 6th in Orlando, Florida will be this year's rendition of the Healthcare Internet Conference. Touchpoint, the podcast will be there along with a lot of great folks and education and panels and all kinds of fun stuff, networking. Uh, So be sure to check that out as well. So that kind of takes us through our fall schedule. Just excited to connect. All right. Well, before we get out of here, let's do a couple of recommendations. I'll go first today. Again, I'm going to mention the move again. But doing so, we we moved into a neighborhood. And uh, when we left Texas, of course, we purged some things because you don't want to pay to move stuff that you don't need. Uh, well, it just happened to be that uh, with growing kids, bicycles was one of those. Uh, the bikes uh, for the kids were a little bit too small. So it was made more sense to uh, donate and or sell those before we left. And so we uh, purchased some new bikes for the kids. My son is actually old enough now that he is riding an adult bike, which I guess is good. But in any case, went with a mountain bike because we are close enough to the school now. He can ride back and forth to school. They both can, I guess. Uh, Went with a Trek Marlin, Trek Marlin 4. It's a Mm. mountain bike. You know, certainly there's hybrids and road bikes and all that kind of stuff. And I I have one of both, uh, a road bike and a mountain bike. But for him and around the neighborhood, it's a real enough mountain bike that, it, you know, if he wants to take it on some trails or off-road, it can. But it's also great for, you know, kind of around the neighborhood and things like that. It's a good entry-level uh, mountain bike if, if someone is considering going that direction. It's a 27-and-a-half-inch wheel with the uh, small or extra-small frame size. As you get to the bigger frames, the medium, large, extra-large, you, you jump up to a 29-inch wheel. So it's a good bike. I recently have been looking for bikes myself. Well, not for myself, but for my wife. And the Trek bikes are really good entry-level kind of bicycles, really good high quality. So great recommendation, Reed. My recommendation is, is actually related to our fall schedule as well, because not only do we have all these conferences to go to, but my wife and I are planning a trip to Europe. Uh-oh. We're going to be gone for half of the month of September. Don't worry, people listening in. Podcast will still run while I'm away, and it won't be just read. We're, we're kind of doubling up some recordings here. But the point is, is we're going to go to not only the UK, we're also going to make our way over to, to France. And here's the thing. Neither my wife nor I speak French. Mm -mm. So what I did is I went out and I got myself the Duolingo app. I downloaded that. Have you ever used Duolingo? No. uh -uh. Well, I'm telling you, I thought I'm just going to brush up on some conversational French that I can have to get me through because French people, you know, obviously don't like Americans that come there and don't try to speak the language. Well, what's really cool is they set up this whole system now where it is totally a gamified way to learn a language. They have different tracks that you could take. They have a reward system, a point system. They have a number of lives, so you can only get four things wrong in a a streak, or you have to wait, which is kind of interesting. And then you have all these different like little levels that you have to get. You have the basics level, which is sort of your introductory to the language. You have greetings level, you have a travel level, you have a people level, and they're all focused on different types of activities. Okay. And it just builds and builds and builds. And quite frankly, I could see 
as I'm doing this, I'm having fun. Different things are like where they have you pick out words. They have you do word matches. They actually uh, ask you to repeat sentences and you use the microphone on your on your phone to repeat back and they grade you on that. It's really a lot of fun. So if you're ever in the need to either pick up a language for a short trip to Europe, like we're doing, or you just want to start learning another language just for the heck of it, I really strongly recommend Duolingo. It is really phenomenal. I know I'm really late to the game, but you know, so be it. (laughs) Great recommendation. So again, please visit our sponsors so Chris can pay for his trip to (laughs) Europe. Yeah, exactly. Well, another great episode. Thanks for hanging in. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for telling a friend. And for Chris Boyer, I'm Reed Smith, and we'll see you next week. This has been a Touchpoint Media production. To learn more about this show and others like it, please visit us online at touchpoint.health.